Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. It's hard to believe, but today's episode is the very last in our fall season. If you're listening in for the first time, please go back and check out our archives to hear all of the great ideas we've explored since October. We've also got new topics lined up for the coming months, so stay tuned. For today's episode, I had the chance to talk with Ken Olson, Associate Professor of Biology here at Washington University in St. Louis. Olson's research focuses on evolutionary biology. He studies the genetic changes that happen in plants as they evolve. Today we'll hear mostly about his work with red rice. This is a type of weed that is a major problem for farmers in the U.S. and around the world. But first, Olson explains why studying a domesticated crop like rice is such a valuable tool for scientists to learn more about plant evolution and genetics. To get started, let's go back in time a little bit to Charles Darwin and the origin of species. Among the the many things that Charles Darwin recognized early on and that he articulated in The Origin of Species was the basic idea that domestication provides a really fantastic system for understanding the process of evolution. And so if you go back and look at The Origin of Species, he devotes the entire first chapter of The Origin to examples of domestication to illustrate his idea of evolution by, by natural selection. One real advantage for studying crops is that because of their economic importance, there is a lot of basic biology that's known about many crop species. And so this includes, for example, rice, uh, which is one of the main crop species that we study in my lab. This is what's referred to as a genomic model species, where the complete genome has been sequenced. And there's a tremendous amount known about which specific genes are responsible for which traits in the crop. And so this makes it much, much easier to understand at the molecular level genetic changes as they relate to variation in traits. So the more you already know about something, in this case the genetics of a crop like rice, the easier it is to build on that knowledge with new research. But this isn't the only advantage to studying domesticated crops. In addition to knowing a lot about the plants themselves, scientists know a lot about the process of crop domestication. If you look at different crop species, many show the same types of changes over time. And this is because in the process of domesticating wild species into cultivated plants, farmers are very likely to select for similar traits. Basically, farmers want crops that are easier to harvest and that provide more food. So one thing that that farmers will very often have selected for, either consciously or unconsciously, is a lack of seed dispersal, what's called shattering. And this is something that uh, occurs uh, pretty much universally with the domestication of the cereal crops, for example. So if you look at barley or wheat or rice, um, so these are all grass species that were domesticated. Uh, Another change that occurs is a loss of seed dormancy because uh, farmers would be harvesting the plants that came up first in their fields. Another change that occurs during domestication are increased resources allocated to whatever part of the plant is being harvested. So we select for larger grains, say, in in the case of rice, or larger fruit size in something like tomato. And so because these same changes are occurring over and over in different crop species, 
And because in the case of crop species, we know a lot about the genetic basis of these changes. This makes it possible for those of us who are interested in the genetic basis of evolution to use these crop systems as sort of a model for understanding how genetic changes are occurring during the evolutionary process. And I imagine it's much more quickly happening in the case of domestication. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent point. So another advantage of studying domestication as an evolutionary process is that all domestication has occurred more or less within the last 10,000 years or so. And on an evolutionary timescale, that's a really recent phenomenon. And so this provides us with a very discrete, defined time frame uh, within which we know all of these changes have been occurring. And so it's uh, very useful in sort of defining the parameters. For all these reasons, domesticated plants are extremely valuable for evolutionary biologists like Olson. But what exactly is he trying to figure out, and why is this type of research important for agriculture today? This is where we get to hear about red rice. So a lot of the work that we've done in various ways is looking at questions of, say, origins of domestication, so trying to figure out which wild populations of wild species were the ancestors of domesticated crops. And then we're also um, interested in understanding the process by which weedy relatives of crops arise. And that's where red rice comes into the, the picture. One of the interesting things about uh, red rice is that it has, um, it's emerging in rice fields pretty much wherever rice is grown around the world. And because different varieties of rice are cultivated in different parts of the world, one thing that we're very interested in looking at is whether the weed is evolving sort of in situ from the local crop varieties, or the, alternatively, the extent to which the weed evolves in one location and then gets spread around as a weed. And so in the case of the weeds that are here in the US, um, which are the weeds that we've studied most extensively so far, it's very clear now that these weeds did not evolve from the crop varieties that we grow in the U.S. Uh, weeds that occur in the U.S. were very likely introduced as weed seeds, as contaminants of grain stocks at some point in the past, and they've subsequently proliferated in the crop. This is a weed that has evolved in crop fields despite the best efforts of farmers. So this is something that is very much to the dis, it's, it's disadvantageous to have in a farmer's field. These are weeds that compete very aggressively with the crop. And from a genetic perspective, it's interesting in that these are plants that have a lot of traits that are much more like the wild ancestor of the crop than the crop itself. So in a way, we can think of this as evolution occurring in one direction during the domestication process, and then going off in another direction, despite the best efforts of, of humans to control this process, um, with the evolution of these weeds. And so these weeds are, are not a minor problem. These are the major um, agricultural pest in, in rice fields, not only in the U.S., but worldwide. And so, uh, for example, in the U.S., uh, a weedy rice infestation can reduce harvests by up to 80%. So this is a, a really, really major problem in agriculture. Okay, so I think that last point is worth repeating. A weedy rice infestation in the U.S. can reduce harvest by 80%. So what exactly makes these weeds so difficult to control? The, the weed has um, this very strong seed dormancy. So once the seeds get into a rice field, they can persist for a very long time and come up year after year. And because it's so closely related to the crop, 
it's very, very difficult to detect these weeds, especially at the seedling stage, where they look almost exactly like the domesticated um, rice. And so they come up in a rice field, and it's not until they start to sort of crowd out the crop and um, shade out the crop that suddenly a farmer realizes that he has this infestation of this very undesirable weed. A bit earlier, Olson mentioned that in the U.S., weedy rice resembles its wild ancestor in Asia much more than the current domesticated rice. So how do the weed and the crop interact on the farm in a field? Are there now hybrids of weedy rice and domesticated rice? I found the answer to this question really surprising, because it turns out that just in the last 10 years, agricultural practices are actually changing how these plants interact with one another. Let's hear more. Uh, with respect to the question of whether or not the weed crosses with the crop in the U.S., this is turning out to be a really fascinating issue. So historically, up until about the last decade or so, there was very little crossing that occurred between the weeds that occur in the U.S. and the crop species that occur in the U.S. Part of the reason for this is that both cultivated rice and weedy rice are predominantly self-fertilizing, so they pollinate themselves. So there tends not to be a lot of crossing that goes on to begin with. What's changed in the last decade or so in the U.S. is that there are now herbicide-resistant rice varieties that are being grown. Um, and, and it's a fairly high proportion of rice fields now where herbicide-resistant rice varieties are being grown. These are varieties where farmers can then spray an herbicide that will leave the crop unharmed and will take out this major weedy rice pest in the rice fields. What this is now doing, though, is it's placing tremendous selective pressure on the weed populations to acquire herbicide resistance in one way or another. Now, wait a second. The weedy rice is acquiring herbicide resistance? How does that happen? Actually, let's take it back a step further. How does the cultivated rice become herbicide resistant in the first place? In, in the case of the herbicide resistant rice that's been developed, this is developed uh, through what's called mutagenesis, where Basically, crop lines are exposed to some chemical that induces a lot of mutations. And most of the little mutant seedlings that come up are very, very sickly and have lots of very undesirable traits. But breeders can then take these seedlings and they'll screen for any seedlings that happen to, through mutation, carry resistance to an herbicide. And then through what's referred to as conventional breeding, basically crossing that mutant plant with desirable crop varieties, they can introduce the genetic variation that confers herbicide resistance. So you cross an herbicide-resistant mutant plant with a healthy, desirable plant, and you can create crops that are herbicide-resistant. Now, let's go back to the weeds. How does this trait transfer over to red rice? From a population genetic perspective, it's a very interesting phenomenon where this potentially can be occurring either by new mutations popping up in the weed, and there's some evidence that this is occurring, or it can be occurring through crossing and gene flow from the crop into the weed, where the weed populations are acquiring herbicide resistance through gene flow from the crop. And so whereas in the past there was very little crossing going on, because of the changes in agricultural practice here in the U.S. just in the last decade or so, we expect to see a very, very different picture where there's now very strong selection for crossing to be going on, where the, the weeds are going to be acquiring uh, genetic makeup from the crop populations. One advantage to studying the, the crop varieties here in the U.S. 
are using the crop um, and weed system here in the U.S. as a study system is that the crop varieties here in the U.S. are much more homogeneous than what you would find in Asia, where, where rice, of course, has been cultivated for thousands of years. And because it's a sort of a simpler genetic system and more homogeneous, it's much easier for us to see cases so where the genetic makeup of the crop is moving over into weed populations. What, what is the end goal as far as, or is there an end goal for this type of research? Are, are people trying to develop more sophisticated systems for keeping these types of plants out of fields or just learning about plant evolution more generally? Yeah, one, one thing that understanding the population genetic makeup of the weeds in the U.S. allows us to understand, for example, the extent to which when things like herbicide uh, resistance are emerging in weed populations, the extent to which that's likely to be occurring through new mutations popping up in the weed or from gene flow from the crop into the weed populations. And so depending on the mechanisms that we find that are allowing these weeds to persist in crop fields, this can help farmers a lot in sort of their strategies for how they treat the weed populations, whether they are particularly aggressive, say, during the, the time of flowering. That might be one change in strategy. Many thanks to Ken Olson for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find out more about his research on his laboratory's website. There's a link at Hold That Thought's website, which is thought.artsci.wustel.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu. Once again, this is Hold That Thought's last episode for our very first season of weekly podcasts. We've got some great new topics lined up for the coming months, so please stay tuned. And as always, thanks for listening. 